Hello, welcome to The Learning Curve. This is Kara Kandel here with the great Gerard Robinson. And Gerard, another week, another, another week. stimulus package. <laughs> How much is this another one week? for, $86? I, billions, the billions are so high, I can't count them anymore, Gerard. The, the last the, number the, I saw was nine, was $1.9 trillion. I read, I read it today, but I'm talking about the billions and trillions going just just to education, just to K to 12 education, not even higher ed. I mean, let's, let's take a big pause. And I'm not, you know, listen, a lot of folks need help. Uh, a lot of folks need help, but um, you and I spend a lot of time operating in the, what are the schools going to do with all this money space? And how, how are those of us who want the schools to do certain things with the money going to advise the schools to do certain things with the money? Um, you know, a hallmark of this package with regard to K to 12, um, is that, um, a hallmark of the last package was this interesting carve out for private schools. But this one for K to 12 is that it's really focused on the districts, you know, other packages, we were giving governors money, um, more flexible pot, do certain things. This is all about spending sending money down to those districts. And, you know, some are saying that with all of this federal relief, districts are going to be able to spend this money until like 2028. It's a lot of money. And one thing I am glad to, to know is that after school programs and out of school learning opportunities, yeah. uh, we'll receive some money this go around. So that's a good thing. Uh, again, I haven't got into the weeds of it, so I don't know what happened to the private schools and whether or not. The yep, there's more. For, there's the same. There's the same for private schools this time around, except uh, a real clarification that you can't use it for tuition reimbursements. Um, or at mm. least that's my latest read. Who knows, Gerard? Things. No, so it's probably the same case, but you know we've talked about that before. Yeah. Well, and you know, in coming weeks, hopefully, we'll be talking um, a lot of folks out there with a lot of ideas on how districts should spend this money. Uh, a lot of folks there with a lot of ideas on how districts should prove that they're spending the money in a way that's going to do the things it's supposed to do, like close learning gaps, et cetera. So we'll be, we will be watching listeners. Don't you worry. We're going to, we're going to read that bill or I will, won't I Gerard? And then I'll tell you about it. You will. Yeah. 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 That's how that's going to go. So, and in other COVID news, um, other than the fact that I don't know, I'm a lot of people around me are vaccinated. I'm not, but I'm, I'm feeling like we might, we might, um, see a light at the end of this tunnel. New survey out an NPR Ipsos poll showing that I was shocked by this. 29% of parents who responded say that they're probably going to stick with remote learning. Really? 29%. So a year ago, Gerard, we're talking oh. about how this is awful. This is horrible for families, especially working mothers who are bearing the brunt and on and on. I mean, listen, and the list goes on. But it sounds like, and I think that this is pretty heartening that, you know, some parents, some kids are finding um, some use to remote learning. And I think it probably also speaks to the fact that it has been getting better and better. Like we've, you know, we've made real progress in how our teachers have our districts that the ones that have actually managed to get devices in the hands of kids and found the kids and stood up learning management systems. We can talk about all that, but, um, that, that it's, you know, we're learning how to do something here. So, um, it'll be, and, you know, as we've talked about before, the investments that this country and that all countries across the globe have made in the tech infrastructure, in in learning devices, in figuring out how to do this online learning thing, um, one would hope 
that we don't just abandon it wholesale because, you know, even before the pandemic, it was working for some kids, especially, you know, like Florida has a virtual school. A couple other states have virtual schools that were running pretty, pretty strong programs by some accounts, programs that had certainly gained strength over time, that had done well over time. A couple other little key takeaways. I always just love these polls because, you know, it's like parents say, oh, remote learning is terrible, but they can't, or those who haven't been in school full-time or haven't had options say, everything is terrible, but I can't tell you why it's terrible. I just know it's terrible. It's sort of like schools everywhere, that, that old adage, right? Schools everywhere are terrible, but the one in my backyard is great. Um, so a lot of parents in this poll responding with a general sense of unease, that is the two-thirds of parents, I guess, that don't want to stick with fully uh, remote learning. But they're, but they're locating actually a lot of things that have less to do with sort of um, curriculum and delivery of curriculum and more to do with, you know, the things that all parents worry about, the social-emotional health of your kid. Um, is my kid actually going to be able to make eye contact with another human being face-to-face, not through a camera? Um, lot, lots of those things. One other thing I'll highlight that was really interesting to me here is parents um, noted. So, so, you know, there's a good chunk of this country, one third that have, of kids have just not been in school period. Mm-hmm. And then have been doing some mix. Most of them have not been in school full, full time. Most kids have been doing some mix of either hybrid or, um, or in school. Um, but a lot of uh, parents noted, there's been a lot of switching going on. So you can feel sort of the instability there from one week to the next. Am I home? I'm in school. Are we hybrid? Are we remote? Are we face-to-face? So I think all of us are going to be happy to at least have some consistency uh, going forward. Anyway, I I know I just went on and on, Gerard. What's on your mind? So two things I want to say. Number one, congratulations to Secretary Miguel Cardona uh, for his vote and get it into office and uh, know that we are here to provide any thought partner support we can to your work. Uh, he's got lots of, of thoughts, secretary. Got a lot of thoughts. I think, I mean, he's the only secretary walking into office with so much cash that's already out the door or will be soon to the States and local areas that he won't have some of the challenges that our first secretary of education, who was a, Ninth Circuit judge, all the way to John King uh, and, and Betsy DeVos, he's just got a lot of different set of dynamics. He's also got COVID to deal with. So uh, I don't want to downplay uh, the seriousness of what we have, but schools have a lot of money. And for the first time, I really don't want to hear that schools don't have money to do the things <laughs> they can do. Uh, I think they're going to have a lot of challenges, and we know that money alone is only part of the equation. We talk revenue. We got to talk expenditures. But um, congratulations to him. And again, uh, we're, we're here to be thought partners. And another thing he will have to deal with in the area where uh, race and classroom is a hot topic is teaching and the number of people who decide to become licensed and those who don't. So my article is from Chalkbeat. It's Dylan Pierce McCoy, March 4th. Just one in six Indiana college students who study education become teachers. And this is from a study uh, produced by the Institute of Education Sciences, which is the research arm of the U.S. Department of Education. And they identified that a group of teachers, it was roughly 11,000 who pursued uh, a bachelor's degree in education, only 16% eventually received licenses and found a job in Indiana public schools. And so the Indiana State Chief um, was concerned, but also the Indiana Commissioner for Higher Education, 
she said there is a treasure trove of information uh, to look at, and we have a problem. And what was identified is that about a 34% of Indiana students are Black, Hispanic, Asian, or what we'd call children of color. And the teaching force is overwhelmingly white. Just 8% of the teachers are teachers of color. And so for the last three years, there's been a lot of research and a lot of conversation about the impact that teachers of colors have on the academic and social well-being of students. And so when Indiana says, listen, too few teachers are actually going into education and the ones who major, only 16% are actually going to get a license, that's a problem. And when you disaggregate data, uh, uh, data by race, uh, African-American students by far uh, tend to, uh, at a lower level, become teachers followed by Hispanics and whites. So you have Blake Nathan, who is the CEO of Educate Me Foundation, which is dedicated to increasing the number of teachers of colors. He said there are a few reasons why uh, teachers don't become or African-American teachers are going into the profession. Some is a concern about incurring student debt and the pay in the profession. So I did a deeper dive in some of the links in the study. And here are three things that uh, those who are interested in the subject have identified as uh, barriers. Number one, 34 states have a GPA requirement for individuals to enter the profession. Mm. So we're looking at a 3.0. At a 3.0 GPA, this would exclude nearly half of the black college graduates and one third of the Hispanic college graduates, according to a federal report in 2012. So one GPA. Number two, let's look at test scores uh, or those who pass tests. The practice test, which is produced by uh, the Education Testing Service, black test takers were about 40% less likely to pass practices than their white test takers and Hispanics roughly 20%. That's the testing part. Well. Someone said, let's create a new assessment, and it's called uh, EdTPA, and it's a portfolio model where you get a chance to actually see teachers in action and look at uh, videos to see what they're doing. Twelve states and uh, hundreds of education programs use it. There's a national report from 2015. They found that while there's no difference in performance between Hispanic candidates and white candidates, guess what? Black candidates perform substanti uh, substantially worse. Uh, on average than their peers. And so when you take a look at that, there's a, there are a number of, of takeaways, but there are two clear ones. If we're going to increase the number of black teachers in their profession, we have to look at what is taking place for the preparation of black students in middle school and high school. This is not a college of education problem. Yes, there are things that colleges of education can do to help. There's even talk of a stipend, forgiving uh, loans, a number, a number of incentives. But you've got to work with this population much earlier. I do have hope because I know there's programs like the education, the fellowship, which was created by Sharif L. Mekki in Philadelphia, is working to bring more black men into the profession. Roughly 2% of the teaching force uh, is black male. And then you have Man the Bay, which is in the uh, San Francisco Oakland area. Uh, founded by uh, two guys that I actually know. Uh, Daniel Rumley is one of them. And they're working with black men who attend historically black colleges and universities, bring them to San Francisco, provide housing, training, and to encourage them to do so. So while it's somewhat depressing, uh, it's not new. We've had a problem, and we've talked about this for 50 years. 
And I won't be the skunk at the picnic any longer, but I just don't think the number is going to change as big as you think they will, because this is a prep problem, not a classroom problem. But Gerard, I want to push back. I want to ask you a question about your, you don't really, I, and I take your point that we, we had, this goes back far further than, than education, but it, the kids who are taking and not succeeding on the practice are, are ed school graduates. Shouldn't we also be asking questions about what exactly, I mean, so like the, the whole grading thing, grade point average, mm-hmm. I mean, the research on bias and grading is much stronger than the research on any bias and test, in my opinion. I mean, it's a very okay. subjective exercise. Mm-hmm. If you really dig into to grading and teacher prep programs, no matter where, uh, I don't even know that most teachers are even taught what what's in a grade, like how to grade, what, how do I even think about grading? Um, but don't the ed schools here bear some responsibility for producing graduates that can't pass the praxis test and what does that mean like what feedback are students giving given about their mastery of the concepts that they need to be successful um i i'm a little i'm a little confused here you don't think the ed school should uh bear some response and maybe some of them need to also establish a higher bar to entry that that's a separate conversation but what, what do you think absolutely no i support the fact that ed schools have skin in the game uh, North Carolina, in fact, is one of the states where they're looking for, uh, I believe, 70 percent passage rate uh, from ed schools in, in terms of looking at what they're doing and not doing. And if they're not, then the state will, mm-hmm. uh, will take some action. So there are things that are in play. Ed schools definitely uh, have a role to play. I just want to make sure that we don't leave high schools and middle schools uh, off the hook. Yeah, that's for sure. And also ensuring that children of... Um all backgrounds uh, have positive experiences, positive academic and social and emotional experiences in school so that they might actually like the idea of spending a career in in a school. <laughs> it could be good too. All yeah. right, Gerard. Yeah. Am I asking for too much? No, Usually. I just think there's some just interesting dynamics as to why a number of black people who could don't go into teaching. The number of middle-class black families I know whose mom, dad, or grandparents were teachers, uh, discouraged their children or grandchildren into becoming teachers. Pay is one factor, but I would I just hate for people to say pay is the only reason. There are a number of people who raise families, are raising families today on a teacher's salary, who retire with dignity, and who've made a great contribution. So yeah, pay is a factor, but it's not the only factor. No. And number two, um, I just don't think that we have just come to grips that people who have opportunities to do something different, just don't see education as a profession they want to go into. And I think there's some class dynamics on that as well. But another topic for another show. All right. Our, our producer, Jamie, will work on that, I think. Yep. Um, all right, Gerard. Well, coming up after this, we are, wow, um, great guest, Luang Ung. So she is author, her book, First They Killed My Father has been adapted by no other than Angelina Jolie into a Netflix film. So a lot to talk about with our next guest, Luang Ung, after this. Learning Curve listeners, we are back with Luang Ung, best-selling author, human rights activist, and co-screenwriter of First They Killed My Father, the critically acclaimed 2017 Netflix original movie based on her memoir was produced and directed by Angelina Jolie and is now streaming on Netflix. 
Her other books include Lucky Child, A Daughter of Cambodia Reunites with the Sister She Left, and Lulu in the Sky, A Daughter of Cambodia Finds Love, Healing, and Double Happiness. She's worked on various campaigns to end violence against women and the use of child soldiers and to eradicate landmines globally. Among the publications, television, and radio shows she's been featured on are the New York Times, Washington Post, USA Today, People Magazine, CNN, Fresh Air with Terry Gross, and The Today Show. In addition, she's been the subject of documentary films broadcast by Nightline, German Art, and Japanese NHK. Luang has given hundreds of keynote addresses at numerous forums in the U.S. and internationally, including Stanford University, Dartmouth College, Phillips Academy, and Women in the World Summit. And here, um, right after International Women's Day, <laughs> we are really excited to have you with us. Welcome to The Learning Curve. I am so happy to be here. Thank you so much for this honor to be here with you all. Well, we are honored to have you um, on, on this venue after you've been on, on so many very high profile ones. And um, I'm sure many of our listeners probably know your books and, and the movie adaptation. Um, I want to like dive in a little bit to, to you know, some of what's ref reflected in your work and, and into history here for our listeners. So the Cambodian genocide led by the Khmer Rouge under the direction of Pol Pot pushed Cambodia towards one of the most radical forms of communism in the 20th century. It resulted in the execution, starvation, and forced labor deaths of up to 2 million people. Two million people from 1975 to 1979, and that was nearly a quarter of Cambodia's population. Would you share with our listeners some of your experiences living through this as you discuss them in your memoir, First They Killed My Father? My survival story is, I believe, very similar to many other Cambodians in Cambodia at that time. In 1995, Cambodia, a country of the site of the state of Oklahoma, was populated by 7 million people. And 90% uh, of people were Buddhists, 90 or so, 90 or 95% were um, small farmers living off the land. My family and I, my, my, we actually lived in the city in the capital of Cambodia called Phnom Penh. And Growing up, I really believed I had a charmed life. I mean, I, I was very busy spying on my three brothers who were <laughs> um, believed they were cool with their bell-bottom pants and their Elvis Presley music that they listened on their eight-track tapes. Um, and my sister and I fought often and so loud. My, my father occasionally would threaten to replace us with monkeys, um, <laughs> which we have a lot in Cambodia. Um, yeah. My mother was... Um, you know, an Amazon in our society at five seven was very tall, and being Chinese, my father's Cambodian, so we grew up in a, a multicultural um, household as well, speaking both Cambodian and Chinese, and going to school studying English, French, and Cambodian or Chinese and Chinese. Um, and so for me, life was very charmed. I, I had my family; I was loved. I felt loved, and they loved me. When the Khmer Rouge, uh, the communist soldiers, stormed into my country on April 17, 1975, I knew nothing of them. I didn't know about the war that had crossed over from Vietnam into Cambodia. I didn't remember or understood what people were talking about when they were talking about the B-52 metal killing birds that stormed into our, our clouds and dropped bombs mm -hmm. that killed villagers. I didn't know about the communists. I didn't know about the monarchy. I just knew that the soldiers came in with their guns and their smiles, pulled out their bullhorns, and started screaming for us to leave our city because 
if we didn't leave, we would all be killed because the Americans were coming in or so they said. Um, and um, on that day, my life became much stranger than fiction. Um, my family and I, among um, other two million other Cambodians living in the city of Phnom Penh, were evacuated in 72 hours. We packed what little we could that we could carry. We left the city because the soldiers ordered us to. And for the next three years, eight months and 20 days, we lived in villages that were more akin to labor camps where all, all our rights, one by one, what we, how we spoke, where we slept, where we travel, what we ate, um, the schools that they abolished or banned, the religion that we were no longer allowed to practice, the colorful clothes that we were so celebrating and loving were taken from us. And then we were forced to wear only black shirts and pants every day, every single day, night and day. And you had nothing else. Um, and they told us when to sleep, eat. Um, and there were no holidays. There were no Christmas. There were no New, New Year's. And so every day we worked, whether we were six or 60, to build and rebuild this country um, and support this government we didn't know anything about. A government that um, was known to us as literally, in, in translation in English, the organization. Um, a government that we didn't know who their leaders were. We didn't know their names or their faces. And we lived in fear every single day. Um, and at the end of the, of, you know, that first year, we knew that we, we, it was just a matter of living in fear, but living in silence. There was, there was no time to play for me. We didn't laugh. We couldn't tell jokes because that could get you targeted. Um, and so I remember as a child at seven years old, knowing that to survive, I had to become dumb, deaf, mute, blind, invisible, just so I could have the privilege of taking that next breath. And so I lived in fear, and yet the soldiers came. And in that first year, they came for my father, and then they came for my sisters, and then they came for my mother. And by the end of the soldiers, um, uh, the regime, when it ended on January 7th, um, 1979, I'd lost both my parents, two sisters, and 20 other relatives. And Cambodians as a country lost 2 million citizens out of a population of 7 million people. It's absolutely horrifying um, to, to, to listen to. And I would venture to guess that far too many people who are listening to this podcast and, and, and beyond um, don't know, don't know this history and don't know the story. Um, you know, here on the learning curve, we talk about, we talk about education issues. We talk a lot about um, history <laughs> and the teaching of history. Um, and I'm curious to get your take as to how narratives like yours, personal testaments, your memoirs can be used um, by teachers and students so that we can understand the full gravity of the of, of what led to what came to be known as the killing fields, um, what this system did, um, the fact that it decimated a population of people. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, what you would have teachers and students understand about this period in time in history, this place, um, and how, how what they should take away from it today? 
the fact that the Khmer Rouge were a committed brutal genocide against its own people is known. The fact that 1.7 million people to 2 million people died in a span of four years is known. The fact that Cambodia, a country the size of the state of Oklahoma, is today littered with over 20,000 mass graves is known. And yet, what do we know of the people? What do we know of the heart? What do we know of fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters who fought so hard that they could so they could be here to be with their loved ones? Um, what do we know of their dreams, of their culture, of their history, of their favorite foods and favorite music? What do we know of the level of their educations, that, um, of what, what they wanted to study, the dreams of a future that they all wish for? That, I think, is the power of memoirs and stories like mine, is to take away the numbers of people and, 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 and the statistics of, of victims and survivors and to give us our voice back, to allow us to reclaim our heart, our, our history, our culture, allow us to be seen as human beings, as daughters, as mothers, as fathers, as sons. And I think that that for a lot of people who may only read of the facts of our, our story and history of the world, we sometimes forget that behind every single number you see connected with any kind of genocide or any kind of wars or any kind of traumas and, and violence in our communities, in our world, behind all those numbers are an actual human person, an actual human heart with actual human dreams. And I wanted people to know that because I remember when I was a child, so that for me, what triggered coming to America, the first time I realized people didn't understand was, um, it was in, in the early, when I first came to America, I believe it was in the early eighties when um, there was a, a great starvation famine happening in Mozambique. And the news stories were showing images of these beautiful children and people with huge eyes and round bellies, like like my belly was when I was starving in the war. And I was very clear that people could see this picture and maybe feel sorrow, but they could not feel the heat. They could not feel the pain. They could not remember. They, they will never, ever remember the sound of war. What does the sound of war what it, what is it like? And for me, the sound of war is so imprinted into my head and into my my brain that I cringe every single Fourth of July now. Forty years mm -hmm. later, fireworks goes off, and I still am re-traumatized. When a low flying plane zoom over my head, that sound of war comes back to me. How does that happen? And these are the kind of stories and the kind of narratives I wanted to share with people that it's not just war, but war carried on in our hearts and in our soul and, and with support that we can heal from that often stays with us for decades and a lifetime after we've left it. Well, thank you so much again for sharing your, your personal story. I grew up in Los Angeles, California. I remember seeing the killing fields in 1984. Uh, shortly after I finished high school. I also know that we had a sizable Cambodian population in Long Beach. And I had relatives who lived there and knew some things about it. So as we think about the killing fields, for those who may not have seen it, it was a story about the landmark journalism of two New York Times reporters, 
Sydney uh, Shansberg and Dith Prawn. And it was about the coverage of the war. You and Angelina Jolie co-wrote and produced a 2017 Netflix movie based upon your book. Can you talk about making your film and the role that cinema can play in bringing light to the general public, to teachers and school children, the human stories that are often behind historic events like the Cambodian genocide? Thank you so much um, for asking that question. And I want to give out a uh, give a shout out to Sydney Shanbert and Dith Pran, two of my heroes. And Dith Pran, I actually met, um, whose his story was made into the movie The Killing Fields. And I met him and he was the first person who encouraged me to write and to make my voice heard and, and to tell our story. Um, so I will be forever grateful to him. Angelina and I came together through write the screenplay for the film and to make the film together because of our long-standing friendship of over 20 years. And um, she actually was making a movie in, in called Tomb Raiders in Cambodia, I believe it was in 1999. And it, my book had come out uh, the year after in 2000 and she picked it up, read it and called me up and we've been friends ever since. And so when she called me up to say, let's make a movie together, I knew right away that she was the right person, the right woman, the right grace, the right um, humanitarian to make this film with. I would entrust my story to no one else but somebody with a track record of doing good in our world because the story is too important to just um, to, to just tell it without um, consciousness. I am so grateful, so grateful for uh, to Angie for leading the process and just as grateful to the Cambodians who came together to help us make the film. We shot the movie in Cambodia for um, three to four months and worked with about 20,000 or so extras, Cambodian artists, Cambodian designers, Cambodian costume designers, um, Cambodian musicians, and it was such it was just an all Cambodian star cast. And for me, I've never had an experience working on such a big project with Khmer people making a movie, my movie, in Khmer language. I, I say this and I get chilled just even saying it again. To make the movie we made in my country with Cambodian people in the language, everything just felt more than film. It felt like soul. It felt like we were traveling on a soul journeys together and, and we were together as a community. My experience of writing the book was very solitary, very painful, very alone. And there were times when it was harmful for me, to be honest. There were times when I was in so deep in the writing and the re-traumatizing of myself to write the book that I, I just, that I was in so much pain and I'm so glad I'm here alive today to speak of it. Um, but to make a movie with a community of people who care so much and who have lost so much and who've also gained so much um, that it became a very cathartic healing process for me. So I'm very grateful and I hope people find the film powerful. Um, and I'm so grateful to um, Angelina for putting us on that that healing route. 20,000 extras uh, who are your people who are part of your story. We often don't get a chance to get, I would say, behind the scenes look at that. How did some of them feel and react and respond initially when this idea was put out to actually to make the movie? 
that we were so supported because we were so respectful. Angelina is very loved in Cambodia and she is very respectful to the culture, to the country. And we did our work and we did our research and we put building blocks of 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 what we you know we actually took care of each other we took care of ourselves we took care of each other we made sure on the movie set that there were buddhist monks to bless the land before we um shot on location we made sure that there were therapists to seek speak to people who may be re-traumatized we made sure that there were tents with games and boxes and boxes and boxes of lego blocks for the children in the movie so they could have time to play um we made sure we were well fed if you are going to shoot a movie about starvation and people who went through starvation, you better make sure <laughs> your movie set has food <laughs> everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think because we were um, we were so respectful that people respected us in return. You get what you give is what I believe. And the Cambodians um, were the Cambodian we talked to and we worked with were just were grateful. It was. It, some people were traumatized. Some people were crying, but we were there together, mm-hmm. um, supporting each other. And um, and I, I really, you know, I mean, for me, I just have nothing but wonderful things to say about our experience of making a film together. In your books and in your speeches, you repeatedly thank your teachers in Essex Junction, Vermont, and at St. Michael's College for helping you adjust to life in America. Can you share with us your educational experiences in the U.S. and the role that schools, religious entities, and local institutions played in supporting your arrival and your new life in New England? I love teachers. I love teachers so much. Some of my best friends are teachers. My niece is a teacher, um, and they have done so much for me. and for, for me, coming to America as a 10-year-old girl without any knowledge of English and arriving to America to a, a state called Vermont in New England, which is statistically still the whitest <laughs> state in America, mm-hmm. you know? and, and I didn't speak English and I arrived in June and that first summer, I had teachers who took time out of their summers to come and teach my family and I basic English words with flashcards. I hadn't, you know, in Cambodia, when I was five, I went to a few schools to study Chinese, Cambodian, French. But from the time I was five to the time I was 10, I didn't have any schooling, never sat in a classroom because we were in a war. And then we were in a refugee. And then that summer, to have people take time, and, and now I understand as, as um an American that we are all so busy and I'm so grateful people came into my home to try to teach me English. And then when, when we went to, um, when I first went to school, the teachers were just so kind. And when they realized that I didn't speak English, they all took time out of their busy schedule to teach me at the school, between classes, with flashcards. And this is back in 1980, before ESL, English as a second language, was mm-hmm. uh, introduced to school. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you remember, I don't think mm-hmm. ESL was introduced until 1994, 1993 or so. And so they were figuring it out, out along 
uh, with with me and boy they worked hard um and i i'm just so grateful i mean it's it was teachers who actually took me to a library and helped me get my very first library card when i was 10 and that for me was a u a universe opener not just a world opener but a universe opener because all of a sudden i went from just reading words to reading about aliens on in on Mars, <laughs> to hitchhiking with the hitchhikers uh, to to galaxy through the galaxy, and um, and it was my teacher Alice Severance when I was in six uh, um, in the ninth grade, who after the very first time I dared to wrote of my story in for school class, he gave me back my paper with an A++ grade on it. Now, as you teachers out there know, that's a hard grade to get, A++. And also, as somebody who didn't speak English, I was so used to getting not great grades and on also a lot of red marks. And I went to Mrs. Severance and I said, Mrs. Severance, you must have made a mistake. I know I didn't write an A++ paper. And he looked at me and he said, you know, and I'm still emotional when I think about it. He said, you know, you will learn to write. You will learn to read. I just want you to know that sometimes what you have to say means more about more than grammar or correct grammar. And this is one of those times I just want you to know that. You will probably not get another A++. <laughs> but I am so grateful because I felt heard. I felt seen. I felt as if my story had value. And I am so grateful to Mrs. Severance. He started me on this, on, on this road to writing. It, and it was because of him that I started keeping journal and I started just writing everything I felt and everything I didn't have the words to say, but felt. And so wherever you are, Mrs. Severance, thank you so much. And thank you to all the teachers for doing this to other teachers people and other little girls and boys just like me in your class. Well, Karen and I would like to give you an A++ for not only sharing yeah, time with us. brought a tear to my eye. <laughs> and that's Mr. hard. She's, she's pretty tough and hard. Um, <laughs> do you want to grace us with reading from your book, whatever passage you'd like to share with us? Sure. So this is, this passage, my book is called First They Killed My Father. And, and for me, I titled the book this because the war happened and I lost other family members. But as a child, when you lose a sibling, you will always think that when the war ends, and if it ever did, that you could go back home and, and renew, resume your normal life and just get back to normal. But when you lose a parent, you know that there will be never ever a normal life for you again. It's it's a loss of childhood and innocence. And so my biggest fear was that I would lose them forever and never see them. And um and never be reunited with them. Um so this is the last page of my book, First They Killed My Father. That night the air is hot and humid as it always is in June in Thailand. 
Lightning and thunderstorms accompany the moist air. I shiver hearing the storm clouds rumble in the distance. I hate electrical storms. They sound as if the sky is at war with itself. The explosions make me feel like death is chasing after me again. I squeeze my eyes shut, trying not to be afraid. Beside me, Meng and Ian sleep quietly, their backs to each other. I envy them their adult status and fearlessness of the dark, stormy nights. After what feels like an eternity, the thunder finally moved on and rain came in its place. The soft pattering of raindrops against our straw hut makes my eyelids heavy. As I drift off to sleep, I think of Pa. I know his spirits can travel over land to be with me, but worry if he can cross the oceans to America. Then in my dream, Pa is sitting next to me. His fingers caress my cheeks and face. The light touch tickles and makes me smile. Pa, I miss you, I whisper. Pa grins at me, his round face wrinkles around his mouth and eyes. Pa, I'm leaving for America tomorrow. Elder's brother said America is very far from Cambodia, very far from you. The words linger in the air, so afraid of what his answer may be that even in my dream, I cannot tell Pa my fear. Don't worry, he said. Wherever you go, I will find you. He tells me as his fingers gently brush strands of hair out of my face. When I open my eyes in the morning, the rain has stopped and the sun is peeking out behind the clouds. The cool breeze blows my hair across my cheeks, tickling them. A few hours later, Meng, Ian, and I hold hands as we enter Bangkok International Airport. Our plane, a giant silver bullet with wings, await us at the gate. My heart thunders loudly in my ears, my palms cold and sweaty. Heartened by my dream of paw, I walked onto the aircraft. Well, that passage certainly um, speaks to what you were saying about how how do we teach <laughs> how do how do we teach about these horrific events and periods of time in our school and to to listen to you help help your readers understand even one small part of how things felt how things looked to you as a child it's 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 beautiful it's it's quite moving and i can absolutely understand how that's an incredible tool for impacting those of us who haven't had such experiences and and making us realize the import so luang ng thank you so very very much for being with us today uh, i know i speak for gerard when i say this is um you're a very uh, um, a memorable person, a memorable guest. Our, our listeners are going to be very moved. And um, and we will certainly recommend your books and in, in, in the film to everybody. Um, we Netflix um, is lucky to have it. So we'll be we'll be thinking of you. And thank you for spending this time with us. And best of luck. Thank you so much. And um, a shout out to all the teachers out there. Thank you so much for being you. Absolutely. <laughs> and um, also Netflix has a really wonderful study guide for the film and the book. Um, so should you choose it, there are materials that you can find on my 
website luongung.com. Um, thank you so much um, to, for having me on your show, and it's been a pleasure. It's been our pleasure. Thank you. And wow, after that incredible, uh, incredible guest, incredible account, we're going to close it out with what I think is a rather uplifting. I was, I was going, I was trying to choose Gerard between snarky tweet of the week and more uplifting tweet of the week. <laughs> and after our guest, I'm going to go with, I'm going to go with the latter. So this one is from our friend Nina Reese uh, at Nina Charters, uh, tweeting out um, an article from a local El Paso news station that Idea Public Schools, Idea Charter Public Schools. Ranks mm-hmm. among the top five across the state of Texas for providing meals to children. So it looks at how districts do in providing meals to low-income children, especially important now because so many kids are used to getting at least lunch at school, and that's uh, changed a lot during the pandemic. Apparently, Idea is doing a, just an amazing job. They're really hitting it out of the park um, because a lot of charters, unfortunately, in Texas aren't doing as good of a job. So one of the reasons I like this story, I love that that somebody's highlighting this is because mm-hmm. I, all those other schools go and ask idea, how'd you do it? What does it take? And how do we get there? So next week, Gerard, we are going to be speaking with Dr. Catherine Tempest. She is a senior lecturer in Latin literature and Roman history at the University of Roehampton in the United Kingdom. She's also the author of Cicero. Politics and Persuasion in Ancient Rome, and Brutus, the Noble Conspirator. So never a dull moment here. You can't say we don't bring you just a wide range of topics on the learning curve. We're looking forward to that. Gerard, until next week, um, stay safe, stay, stay sane, stay happy, and, and don't forget to read that COVID relief bill, okay? I would do so, Martha Washington. Take care. <laughs> Goodbye. Goodbye.